welcome to my new show, Innocence Advocate, Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This series is going to break down what I believe to be the wrongful conviction of my uncle, Stephen. Now, Stephen's story is not just a story of murder and a conviction. It is a story about mental illness, police misconduct, corruption, a poor investigation, and how all of this hides sometimes in plain sight within our justice system. Last year, I wrote a book about my uncle and the murder he was convicted of and all the twists and turns that came along with this case. Now, the book is sitting here waiting for a literary agent to decide they like it, but I am fighting with the masses for their attention. So I thought while I continued that fight, I would bring Stephen's story to this audience. My goal in writing the book is the same as this podcast. It is to bring awareness to Stephen's story in the hopes that someone out there could help me, help my family, help Stephen. And by help, I mean our pursuit of exoneration. As you follow along with this story, you, the listener, you're going to get to decide for yourself. Is Stephen guilty or was he wrongly convicted? So thank you for joining me and following along in this journey of advocating for innocence. These next few episodes will break down the murder Stephen was convicted of, the investigation, Stephen's mental illness, the misconduct that was used throughout his arrest and his two trials. But you're also going to get to hear more than that. You're going to get to hear about police perjury that took place, other potential suspects, leads that the detectives didn't follow through on, and even a taped confession from someone else that the police hid for three years. Plus, I'm sharing new information that was not presented in trial and also conversations that were held on the record but not in the presence of the jury. I think if they had been privy to all this information that you're about to get, they may have reached a different verdict. But first, let me give you a succinct version of the crime and how I got to this point. On Mother's Day, 1996, 16-year-old Kristen Scarabelli was murdered. Neighbors heard screaming around 11 p.m. in the area that would later be determined as her front lawn, but nobody checked on her or her house. Her parents came home about 20 minutes later that night and she was already gone. But they didn't think that this was unusual because she often spent school nights at her friends' houses. But when her ride for school showed up the next morning and she was nowhere to be found, her mother began to panic. Kristen was reported missing that morning, the 13th, and devastatingly, her body was found the next day on the 14th, 500 feet down from her own home at the end of the street, hidden underneath a large tree. This case was unsolved for five and a half years until my uncle's arrest in October of 2001. My uncle lived with his parents, my grandparents, in the house next door to the victim. He was tried for the first time in 2003, but the jury could not reach a verdict. The judge continued to urge them onward, but after seven days, they were completely deadlocked. So the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial by hung jury. Stephen was retried in 2004 and was ultimately convicted of second-degree murder with a sentence of 25 years to life. My family appealed shortly thereafter, but it was denied. And after the appeal, I think my family was just drained emotionally, physically, mentally, and financially. Shortly after Stephen's conviction, his mother, my grandmother, passed away. And then again, shortly after that, his father, my grandfather, passed away. Needless to say, it was a difficult few years for everyone, but especially for my father and for my two uncles. Stephen, who is still behind bars, and my uncle John, who's the oldest brother. It took years before anyone even thought about doing more for Stephen other than visiting and writing. In 2014, I tried to fill out as much as I could for the Innocence Project on my uncle's behalf, but at the time, I didn't have the resources to get adequate answers to the questions on the forms, and these forms are very specific, and they're asking for detailed responses. In 2020, my parents moved to Utah, where I currently live, and my dad brought all of his files that he had from Stephen's case. 
I was working as a high school English teacher at the time and I had three young children. So I didn't really have much time to focus on the files, but I really wanted to. I would be up at night just thinking and itching and really wanting to get in there and read them and be able to do something with them for Stephen. But it wasn't until 2022 that I actually began to make this happen. I had assigned my senior English class an argumentative essay on prison reform. Now, the assignment had nothing to do with Stephen. It was a branch off of a unit about power and obedience that we had been studying in literature. And I had one student who refused to complete the assignment, telling me that there wasn't anything to argue because the justice system was fine. Prisons didn't need reform. Now, I had to carry on in a conversation about, okay, that's fine. Now go ahead and turn that into an argument because you can still argue that side. But as I'm saying this, I'm being smacked with images and emotions. Um, And you may have have had this happen to you before where it feels like it's a long time, but it's really just a matter of seconds where it's just constant flashes of things. And that's what I was experiencing in this moment. It was seeing Stephen's face. It was seeing the words from media headlines. It's seeing my grandparents, seeing the courtroom. And all of this just kind of converged on me at once. And that's when I realized that I needed to do more. And that was my last year as a teacher. I quit and I started working on Stephen's story full time. So I compiled my dad's resources that he had, boxes of all his files, and also the boxes and files from my other uncle, my uncle John. And through this, I was able to piece together the story, but I was also able to finally fill out all of the information for the Innocence Project. And I completed that about nine months ago, and we're all patiently waiting to hear back as to whether or not they're going to take on the case. In the meantime, I was also a guest on another podcast, Killer Stories, hosted by Bobby Holmes where she graciously let me share some of the details about this case, as well as the book that at the time I had just finished writing. But I wanted to share more. I wanted to get into all the details and break down some of the important components of this case, and then let you become a jury of public opinion. The information you will hear in this podcast is all from official court documents. So that includes trial transcripts, psychological evaluations, letters from family members to Stephen's lawyer, affidavits, and even official complaint to the New York State Grievance Committee. In addition to those official documents, I'm going to share my own personal interactions and stories about my uncle. But just like in my book, I'm not leaving out information that might not shed the best light on Stephen. After all, he is human. Most of us have things in our past we wouldn't necessarily want broadcast. But just because we aren't perfect, just like Stephen wasn't, doesn't mean we murder our next door neighbors. I also wanted to make it known that I hold a great sadness for the Scarabelli family. They lost a loved one way too young and being sensitive to them has always been important to me during this process. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about Kristen. Her story is not mine to tell, but Stephen's story cannot be told without sharing a piece of hers because the two are linked in the most unfortunate way. So before breaking down the case, it's important for you to know who Stephen is. There aren't that many people who know about him because he was a recluse for so long. I thought it best to explain to you a little bit about his lifestyle and who he was so that as you follow along in this journey, it's not just me saying he's innocent, believe me. It's you knowing a little bit more about him so that you can make a more informed decision. So on the onset, it's easy to categorize him as a schizophrenic recluse and a germaphobe who is now a convicted murderer, but he is more than that, and his humanity cannot be summarized so easily. Let's back up and look into Stephen's childhood and this abrupt change in his behavior that would later be identified as schizophrenia. Now, I had to ask my dad a lot of questions about Stephen's childhood because obviously I wasn't around yet, but I also had some information from my grandmother's perspective in letters that she had written. Stephen was born on May 21st, 1960 in the Bronx, New York. 
He was the third child and youngest son of John and Marie Manolis. So my uncle John is the oldest. My dad, George, is in the middle. And then Stephen was the youngest. They lived in the Bronx until they moved to East Northport, Long Island, when Stephen was about six years old. My grandmother reported that he was healthy and intelligent. He was full of life and energy. She also said that he had an ordinary childhood with no problems. He enjoyed things like going on summertime camping trips. He went to all the family get-togethers for holidays and other occasions, that he went to California, and that he also traveled with his grandmother to Israel and Greece during one of his summer vacations. This visit with his grandmother was actually described in more detail in an affidavit that my grandparents wrote for Stephen's alibi. So they were explaining in the alibi why they remembered May 12th so well. And part of it had to do with this strong relationship that Stephen had with his grandmother and some health issues that she was dealing with on the 12th. And that's why they remembered exactly where he was and at what times on that day. So in that letter, they explained that in 1980, Stephen's grandmother was a passenger on a flight to Kennedy Airport. And during that flight, the captain announced over the intercom that a passenger had been the winner of two airplane tickets to anywhere in the world. And that passenger was Stephen's grandmother. She had always wanted to visit the Holy Land, but at the time of this, she was 80 years old. So she needed someone to go with her. So out of her 15 grandchildren, she picked Stephen to accompany her that summer and they visited Israel and Greece together. Stephen's childhood in the most basic sense, how I would describe it is picturesque. East Northport was and still is a nice neighborhood with beautiful homes, well-to-do families, and a seemingly happy environment. My dad shared with me this story that I thought kind of categorized a little bit of Stephen's behavior. And that was how they both received these new bikes at the same time when they were young boys. And they would ride around the neighborhood with the other kids calling themselves the crows. They'd go to like the local drugstore and such. My father's bike was quickly destroyed because he used it so much. And he described to me the painstaking endeavor of trying to ride around the neighborhood with a broken wheel, which resulted in him eventually crashing into several garbage cans. So of course, he had to throw his bike out. But that wasn't Stephen's condition from his bike. He kept his in great condition and he cherished it. And he actually refused to dispose of it and kept it until he was an adult. In fact, the bike was still in the garage for years after his arrest. So in addition to behaving in what would be considered... Typical social settings with kids in the neighborhood and in school, Stephen also had good family relationships. My father and Stephen shared the same bedroom until their middle teen years when they decided that they finally needed their own space. But they were often getting in trouble for staying up too late talking, having to be reminded by their parents several times to go to bed. Stephen performed well in high school, both academically and physically. In 1979, he entered Stony Brook and he had enrolled in the pre-med studies program. However, his grades in his first semester ranged from Fs to Bs and by his sophomore year, he was put on academic probation. He did register for more classes in the fall of 1981, but he would never return to school. While attending college, my grandparents began to witness a more severe change in Stephen's behavior to which they attributed to a girlfriend that he had at the time. In 1982, Stephen was arrested for theft and sentenced to probation and psychiatric evaluation in which he was originally diagnosed with a personality disorder. After this incident, he abruptly dropped out of school. He retreated from really any contact with the outside world and remained almost entirely secluded in his home with his parents for the next 21 years until his arrest. Stephen's theft included a neighbor's car and stealing a ring from his former girlfriend's dorm room, which he then sold at a pawn shop. He did go to the first few required check-ins for his probation, but he refused to believe there was anything wrong with him, so he stopped going. 
and he was given a summons to appear in court. My grandfather wrote a letter explaining Stephen's situation. I don't have that letter. So I asked my dad what was in the letter, kind of what was going on at this time. And he said that my grandpa was just writing about this sudden and abrupt change in Stephen's behavior, how they believed this girlfriend was putting him up to doing some of this stuff, how he had just dropped out of school completely. And because of this, the judge taking all this into account, he actually dropped through probation at that time and Stephen was no longer required to go. And this is when his reclusion began. And this is the only way that I know Stephen as a recluse. I think maybe this was harder for his parents or for his brothers to watch because they knew him as a completely different person, but that wasn't my perspective. So what do I mean when I say reclusive lifestyle? What, what did that look like? I knew Stephen to stay mostly in his room. He kept his room dark. His curtains were always closed. He slept pretty much on the floor, just a mattress on the floor. He never went outside during the day. If he did go outside, he would do it at night and he would stay close to his home in the front yard or the backyard. And I never once saw Stephen eat. I actually had to ask my dad what he did for food. And he said he would wake up early, make his breakfast, clean it up, and then take his food to his room to eat and just bring his dishes down later. I don't ever remember seeing him in the kitchen. So he's doing these things while he knows that we're not going to be in there. And even though he wasn't in our faces all day, he was always there in ways that are very memorable to me. Images that I can still see clearly to this day. He might be looking out the window or standing in the doorway at the back of the den while we watch TV. He wouldn't come in the room and sit down on the couch with us and watch TV with us, but he would stay in the back in the doorway. And that was just his way of being a part of the family, but not having to fully immerse himself in it, doing it in a way that felt comfortable to him. When we weren't there and he was just alone with his parents, he would sit on the couch and he would talk to them and he would watch TV with them. It was just a little bit different when he had three obnoxious children running around and my mom and dad being there as well. He did like to play games with us. And when he wasn't doing that or, you know, kind of watching TV with us, he'd be in his own room just reading, um, watching TV or hanging out quietly by himself. But we did play games and I have nothing but fond memories with my uncle. I mastered tic-tac-toe with Steven and he would sit at the end of my bed with me and play the dot game. And I would wait patiently, kicking my feet back and forth, waiting for him to draw on all the dots that you need to play that game. We like to call sweepstakes numbers sometimes. And in the room that I shared with my sister, there was a landline. So we would all meet my brother, my sister, myself, and Uncle Steven would meet in the room and we would call these sweepstakes numbers. And sometimes we would come up with funny names. And sometimes I think we were taking it seriously and actually trying to win, but we never did. And sometimes he would tell us stories. Some of them would be outrageous, ridiculous things we knew that weren't true. And others were just simple everyday stories. So while physical affection was never offered by Stephen, he did show us care in many other ways. So aside from playing games with us, I have distinct memories of him always being concerned about sleeping arrangements. My sister and I slept in the room next to Stephen's and there were two twin beds in there. And he was always making sure that the windows were open, that our fan was at just the right angle, that the curtains were open the right amount so that we would get a nice breeze, especially on those hot summer nights. And he just looked out for us. He, he was always caring for us in ways that were safe and comfortable to him. But he did not like touching. He avoided physical touch as much as possible. Sometimes he would tickle us while chasing us around the house, but it was a painful tickle because he was using only his pointer finger and essentially just jabbing us in the side to avoid, you know, having to wrap his whole hand around our waist and actually tickle us. My mom shared with me how she used to watch him 
turn off the faucet with paper towels so that he didn't have to touch the knobs after he had washed his hands. Stephen wore generally the same thing every day. That would include tan or gray slacks. I think today we would probably call it grayish, button-down dress shirts and brown flip-flops. And his hair was long down to his shoulders, maybe even longer than that. And he was balding on top. So he always carried a metal comb in his pocket and he would comb his hair with it throughout the day. Although his behavior might seem odd to others, and sometimes it was even hard for me to describe, it was just normal for us. There were very few times in my life that before working on this story, I even brought this up to my parents or asked them questions. When we were younger, my parents would send us to Long Island for a month to stay with our grandparents and Stephen in the summer. And it was just a regular summer vacation. And the way that Stephen behaved was just so completely normal to us that it wasn't even worth questioning. But as I got older, I heard schizophrenia said in regards to Stephen, and this is going to be like after his arrest, but it wasn't until I read through the psychological evaluations, which were conducted after his arrest, that I truly understood more of perhaps the reasoning behind how he behaved, who he was as a person. And honestly, it didn't make me feel anything but more sad for him. The psychological reports conducted after Stephen's arrest shed light on his mental state overall, but the purpose of these evaluations was to determine whether or not he was in his right mind to knowingly, willingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waive his Miranda rights at the time of his arrest. And both reports are vastly different. Dr. Barbara Curran is a renowned psychiatrist who works with identifying mental illness for trials, especially when people are pleading insanity, which was not even a question in Stephen's case, but that is a lot of what she does. She conducted his evaluation for the defense, so for Stephen. And then Dr. Berger completed one for the prosecution. The question regarding the rights was due to the conversation around his mental illness and also the fact that Stephen denied ever signing away his rights, but there is a signed waiver card from him. However, the ways in which that signature was obtained and the circumstances surrounding his arrest would actually become a large part of the trial. So what did these two psychiatrists conclude? Dr. Kerwin, who completed her analysis for the defense, determined the following information. She said, It is my clinical opinion, based on the information reported above, that Stephen Manolis suffers from a mental disease and brain defect so serious and pervasive that it interferes with his ability to function independently. His auditory processing disabilities and short-term memory deficits make it nearly impossible for him to participate for any length of time in a coherent conversation or to truly appreciate questions and information that is asked of him. Consequently, as is typical of people suffering from brain damage, Stephen will confabulate. That is, he will piece together a story to fill in the blanks of his memory in order to cover up the extent of his impediment. It is highly improbable that in the agitated, emotional, and physically injured state following his arrest, he was able to knowingly, willingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waive his Miranda right. At all times, Stephen struggles to appear sane and rational and to deny that he suffers from any mental symptoms at all. In fact, Stephen consistently denies that he ever gave statements to the police or waived his Miranda rights. He asked me why he was not allowed to make a phone call to his parents. A reading of the police statement taken from the time of his arrest reads like a textbook of schizophrenic thinking, complete with delusions and hallucinations, further exacerbated by the cerebral damage. Much of the time during the interrogation, Stephen was disoriented, not responsive to questions, self-contradictory, and delusional. It is not uncommon for a schizophrenic individual to dissociate into a delusional alter ego when they are under stress. It is my clinical opinion 
that at the time of his arrest and interrogation, Stephen Manolis was suffering from a mental disease and cerebral defect so severe and so pervasive as to render him incapable of knowingly, willingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waiving his Miranda right. Now, the traumatic brain injury that she referenced throughout her report was completely new information to my family. In fact, nobody ever figured out how Stephen received a traumatic brain injury, but there are still questions to this day as to whether or not he received that TBI during his physical arrest, which we will get into in an upcoming episode. These results from Dr. Kerwin were also supported by another doctor, a Dr. Bushbaum, who looked at Stephen's brain scans, and he concluded two things, that he had a closed head injury, most consistent with a traumatic brain injury. So what he described as frontal lobe changes and decreases in his caudate, which were consistent with their studies of schizophrenia. When I read this, I actually felt a great deal of sadness for Stephen. You know, I knew him personally. I knew the way that he behaved and I knew that he had been treated poorly, but reading that he had both a TBI and schizophrenia at the same time, it just made me feel sad for how confused he must have felt in some of these life altering situations that he had to go through. But there are always two sides, and that report wasn't the only one that was used in trial. We also have the report from Dr. Berger, who conducted his evaluation for the prosecution. Dr. Berger determined the following information. He said, the behavior described above cannot be considered a consequence or function of either mental disorder or organic brain disorder. A mentally ill individual does not go to such deliberate extremes to confront and disobey authorities. And while Dr. Kerwin's assessment is of the defendant's current functioning and pathology, admittedly, he has become more dysfunctional over time. Mr. Manolis exhibited the same conduct and behavior during his 20s as he had in his 30s and 40s. His obstreperous, disrespectful, entitled, lying in the service of self-interest and is self-serving conduct that has been exhibited during questioning by authorities both in 1996 and 2001 was also manifested in the early to mid-80s. He is obstreperous, vulgar, sarcastic, condescending, and generally uncooperative. The responses Mr. Manolas provides are by their very nature examples of his cognitive and intellectual awareness of his circumstances, the purpose of the interrogation, and the crime for which he was being charged. His responses confirm that he is making statements of his own volition knowingly and intelligently. At no time does the defendant directly confess to the charge. Comprehensive review and analysis of all available current and historical data in conjunction with a psychiatric and psychological assessment has made it possible for me to provide an opinion with a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Mr. Manolis did not lack, but rather had the mental and cognitive capacity to knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waive his Miranda rights and to exercise the powers of rational reasoning, self-determination, volition, and free will. Besides the fact that both reports present a completely different picture of Stephen, I found issue with one thing as I went through the evaluation. Dr. Kerwin spent a lot of time with Stephen, meeting with him and taking him to all of his tests and scans at the hospital. She breaks this down as individual hours in her report, but overall, she spent 30 hours with Stephen over six occasions in different settings spanning nine months. Dr. Berger spent maybe an hour or two with Stephen one day in a conference room at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Almost everything used in Dr. Berger's report was gathered from other people, most of whom hadn't seen or heard from Stephen in over 20 years. So this is before his reclusion. So Dr. Kerwin's not only spending more time with Stephen, but she's also 
seeing him in different environments and interacting with new people within those different environments. And based on that and the time that she spent with him, it seems as though she would have a more clear and accurate depiction of Stephen's mental state. In the end, despite these differing reports, one thing has always remained the same. In the last 27 years, Stephen has fervently maintained his innocence. He has never said anything other than, I am innocent. And the police were never able to obtain a confession from Stephen. And whichever report you choose to believe, there are facts that cannot be changed. Stephen is mentally ill. Stephen did not like to touch others and he did not like to be touched. At the time of his arrest, he had been a recluse for over 20 years. When someone with a mental illness such as schizophrenia or a schizoid personality is tried for murder in a corrupt system, justice cannot adequately be served. During Stephen's ordeal, it was impossible for my family to fight against the tunnel vision and groupthink that had already been established by the police and prosecutor. I once read that police with tunnel vision make poor investigators, and that sentiment rings vitally true in Stephen's case. There are two questions that continue to haunt my family. These are the two questions that remain unanswered no matter how many times we have tossed this story over and over with each other throughout the years. Is a mentally ill recluse who is fearful of physical and verbal contact truly able to put his hands on another human being, touch them and strangle them and do so in the presence of neighbors? And did the prosecution meet their heavy burden of proof in order to serve true justice? Did they really prove guilt? Or did they just paint a good enough picture for the jury? And these are questions that maybe you can help to answer. Tune in next week to hear specifically about the details of the crime and the initial investigation that took place. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.